Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start today's episode with a look at something that happened very recently in American history, and that is the controversy taking place in American football, not what the rest of the world calls football. That's the controversy taking place in American football regarding players taking a knee in protest during the national anthem. I refuse. Wait, are you supposed to take a knee? You, no, you're not supposed to take a knee. Ooh. It's disrespectful to take a knee. In fact, the NFL, I believe, just came out with new rules that um, require players contractually to stand for the national anthem. But as you say, Ben, yes, it was an act of defiance, um, a way of standing up or taking a knee, rather, for their particular cause célèbre. Mm-hmm. Is that okay, Casey? That was great. Oh, and that's our super producer, Casey Pegram. Who is, in fact, on the case. Mm-hmm. And I'm Ben, and you are? I'm Noel. Oh, and that makes this ridiculous history. Yeah, we are not the—it's no secret that you and I are not diehard NFL fans, but like many people in this country and in other countries, we were fascinated by this story, by this process of protest and counter-protest. And— Noel, as you pointed out just a second ago, the NFL did in May of 2018 ban the practice of taking a knee, although this is a tremendously controversial ban. Yeah, I think it's being appealed or picketed or, you know, protested in some way by the union, the players union, I believe, because come on, man, like if you can't uh, if you can't protest as a multimillionaire overpaid sports figure, you know, what does that say for the rest of us? And what does it say about free speech as well? Exactly. Um, But we're talking about, uh, not this exactly, kind of, 
It's weird. It's part of the story, but we're talking about kind of the opposite of this, which is using sports as propaganda. Right. I would say that we're talking about a a larger context because this specific event in modern history provides an excellent point of comparison to the earlier events that I think surprised both of us when we began digging into this and sporting events on an international scale have long functioned as acts of propaganda. You know, iconic moments in history occurred at the Olympics, for instance, right? Absolutely. And what is the Olympics if not a chance for various countries to achieve perhaps not global dominance and hegemony, but at least dominance on the field of sport, right? foe battle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we see it in the World Cup. We see it in the World Series. We see it in the Super Bowl. And today's episode involves a tremendously important political event that took place on a soccer field. We have to go into some political context, I think, first, right? I think we do, Ben. It's true. Um, so we're talking about Germany, right? And and the second half of the 1930s, um, the Nazi party that had taken over Germany was really, really, really becoming quite aggressive, weren't they, Ben? In 1935, they publicly announced that they were going to rearm their military, which flew in the face of a little something called the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War One. Isn't that right, Ben? That is correct, Noel. And we've talked a little bit in the past about the enormous cost Germany bore as a result of World War One, And this had dangerous effects on their economy and it's one of the factors that allowed the very aggressive expansionist Nazi regime to come into power. That's right. And at the time, other people, other countries and, and heads of state couldn't agree on what the proper unified response to this aggressive German government should be. The question was, should we contain the Nazi party and Germany? Should we openly combat them or should we attempt to, you know, appease them, make oh, yeah. it make nice? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Let's, 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 let's run with that word, Ben. Let's let's make a whole system out of this. Yeah. A policy. We'll call it appeasement. There we go. In How a, about that? In a burst of creativity. Well, but you can understand why. I mean, people were shell-shocked from the h- havoc that was wreaked by World War One all across Europe. I mean, that was no fun. It was utter devastation in many parts of the country. And the Treaty of Versailles, even the Allies kind of realized, people on the ground at least from what I've read, that the Treaty of Versailles wasn't particularly fair mm-hmm. to a lot of the countries that it involved, especially Germany, because th- under the treaty, they were limited to having 100,000 strong military. But again, in '35. After they'd been kind of amassing weaponry all these years, they got the confidence under Hitler to come out and say, yo, we are building up our military again. Boo on your treaty. We could care less. Mm-hmm. And they escalated that. 36, they occupied the Rhineland, mm-hmm. which is a area, a region, a small region in the middle of, of the country, also totally against the Treaty of Versailles. Yes. And this appeasement policy Sound, may sound strange to us today because we have the benefit of knowing what happened uh, after this 
policy was in place. But the appeasement policy is often pointed out as the worst decision that Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain ever made. But there were other British prime ministers who followed the same policy, including Ramsay MacDonald and Stanley Baldwin. This wasn't just um, made for Germany. It also was applied to uh, Italy, which was under the control of a fascist regime at That's the time. Right. And it lasted from 1935 to 1939. Our story today takes place during that time. It takes place in 1938 at a soccer game. It's true. And just to backtrack ever so slightly to go back into appeasement, every time the Nazis did these kind of brash moves like occupying the Rhineland uh, in the year of our story, they annexed Austria. Right. Um, and they actually like did a coup d'etat within their Nazi, already pretty strong Nazi party within Austria and Austria being Hitler's boyhood home. Right. We're going to spend a lot of time in this episode going from the specific events to the larger context. So before we get to the famous event that occurred in May, uh, May 14th, 1938, let's go back earlier in the year to April, where we saw another precedent set, an example of protests through sport. Yeah, the one we kind of uh, alluded to at the top of the show. Um, Because like I said a minute ago, it was in 1938 that Germany really uh, went hard in the paint and totally annexed Austria, as I said, overthrew the government in um, an effort to combine the two countries Mm -hmm. uh, in an event they refer to as the Anschluss. And um, Austria had a pretty... Uh, ballin, pun totally intended, uh, soccer team, football team, um, headed up by a guy by the name of Matthias Sindler. Yeah. Or Schindler, I've heard. I, I'm gonna, I think it's Sindler. There's no S-C-H. It's S-I-N-D-E-L-A-R. Yeah. Um, and Ben, he had a really cool nickname, didn't he? Yeah, it was the paper man, or der paperin. Uh, Sindler, S-I-N-D-E-L-A-R, was known as the Mozart of football as well. I don't know if you saw that one. He played as the center forward for the Austria national team that was known as the Wonder Team. And he captained the 1934 World Cup. This guy is a football superstar. And this game that occurs uh, on April 3rd in 1938 was meant to celebrate what Germany was calling, get this, Austria's Coming home to the Reich. Come on home to the Reich. Come on home to the Reich. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But here's the problem. Sindler hated the Nazis. Predictably, yeah. Predictably, yeah. I mean, they they totally came into his his country, took it over, tried to change everything about his way of life, including trying to smush his Mm -hmm. football club in with the German football club. That sucked, by the way. Germany was not good at at, at soccer. Can I call it soccer? I'm just going to call it soccer. Yeah, just call it soccer. As a matter of fact, we have a fun firebomb to throw for you ridiculous historians if you are football or soccer fans. A factual Molotov cocktail? It might be a bit incendiary for some people. I found this article in The Atlantic called Why Americans Call Soccer Soccer by Uri Friedman, it's a British term. It's makes not sense. a U.S. term. Okay. And we here in the States picked it up from England. The word soccer originated in England, fell into disuse there, and became dominant in the States. And uh, there are some people who have studied this 
who found uh, what they did is they looked at the frequency with which the words football and soccer appeared in American and British news outlets dating back to 1900. Soccer was a recognized term for the the game we're describing for the first half of the 20th century, but it wasn't widely used until after World War II when it became interchangeable with the phrase football and sometimes used together soccer football. Okay, but I'm an American. I'm an American. I'm proud of it. So I call hitting that, that ball with, with, with you hit your foot with the ball game, I'm going to call it soccer. <laughs> so <laughs> just, just as not to confuse, you know, because I don't want to say American football. That sounds ridiculous. So you just, have to say it in a British accent exactly. if you say American football. Although the, the, the fact the Brits have been dominant in uh, the sport since, sure. since the very beginning. And I want to sew this up real quick because I, I'm sure this is going to interest several of you ridiculous historians, especially if you've had an argument with one of your friends across the pond about this. It traces back to World War II. Most likely American troops stationed in the UK during the war came back and started using that phrase, and that led to a backlash against the word in Britain. And now this word has completely immigrated to the U.S. Isn't that funny? You still haven't given me the etymology. It's just like, is it about the socks? The knee socks, the fact that you're socking the ball around with your foots. It's a shortening of association footballer. That's stupid. So soccer. <laughs> that's that's the worst possible answer. But you can't you can't go in and expect a language to conform that's to true. what you as an individual. I, I'm not prove mad of, at you, Ben. Know? I didn't mean that to come off like it was your fault. The the, the the origin of soccer is so dull. But I'm disappointed. I think it's fascinating. It is fascinating, Ben. You know what else is fascinating? Yeah, back to Sindler. Let's do it. Um, so again, super salty about the Nazis coming in and invading his home turf and trying to you know, jam up his, his soccer club. Um, and so they, this, this game in question in, what do we say? April of 1938? It's April 3rd, 1938. That's right. It's meant to be, uh, on paper at least, a celebration of the historical legacy of the Austrian soccer club. And the last match that the team would have as an independent Austrian team. Before it gets smushed in with the, right. uh, far inferior German club. So so they begin protesting the moment they hit the field. Kind of. Yeah. Well, the, uh, what, I, what I had seen in an amazing documentary from the BBC called Fascism and Football was that it was very clear that the Austrians had been told to, to lose. Yeah, to throw the game. To throw the match. To show the um, symbolic or propagandistic importance of aligning with Germany. That's right. And and just to, uh, one quick aside, one quote that I think is so amazing from this documentary, fascism in football, rather, you can find the whole thing on YouTube and it's just great, is the idea that um, sports were such a powerful tool for propaganda because when you win, you win. And you can't, like, no one can accuse you of lying because if you win and are dominant in a sport then that's just before everyone's very eyes. You are the clear, you are the winner. You you won and you play by the rules. It's what we today would refer to as optics. Optics, and exactly. PR. And so uh, the star player of Austria's team, Sindelar, that's right. refuses to go along with this plan. He says, I am not going to pay obeisance to this invading power. And furthermore, 
I'm not going to cheapen the most important thing in my life. Well, and the funny thing is, too, like, yes, you're absolutely right. He definitely did not go along with it and that he did not look like he was trying very hard. He made it very clear that he was just kind of farting along very lacklusterly, right? right. Um, I think he even was, like, shaking his head in disdain, kind of. And refused to wear the uh, uniforms they were supposed to wear, their traditional white and black. They replaced it with, on Sindelar's uh, orders, more or less, the Austrians played in red, white, red outfits the mm. national flags colors yikes and uh and yeah like you're saying the audience knew something was up because it seemed like they just weren't trying they were just farting around until what the last 20 minutes yeah and then uh and then sindler the paper man um scored one of two uh mm. goals and carl sesta got the second one who i think was his bestie i mm. think i think they were they were like really really close and yeah they uh, totally totally humiliated the nazis apparently kind of did one of those like end zone kind of cocky yeah cock of the walk kind of dances right in front of like can you imagine the scene ben the scene, stands yeah. full of nazi officials high senior uh, Nazi dignitaries and they celebrated extravagantly. They owned the moment because they really had publicly humiliated these officials. And it's, we don't have solid historical proof of this. So this is entirely speculation on my part, but I would not be surprised if some of those pro-Nazi forces knowing in theory, the outcome of the game had decided to gamble on it a bit. Oh, absolutely. So they were out money, but oh. more importantly, they were out public credibility. Oh, absolutely. And here's the thing. As, as you might imagine, uh, Sindler was made persona non grata at that point. He was declared in their internal Gestapo memos on him that declared him pro-Jewish, among other uh, death sentence worthy uh, distinctions. Like a social democrat. That's it. That's and right. so uh, he... About a, within the year or within a year after these events, he was dead at the age of 35. Under the most suspicious circumstances. Mm -hmm. I think he had been out partying that night and gambling in a coffee shop that he was a part owner of. Or the guy that talks about it, his, his buddy in this documentary, referred to it as his coffee shop. I'm not sure if that was just a translation thing or if it was just like the place where they would all hang out. Right. But they were gambling, playing cards. A lot of money was on the table and a lot of drinking. And then he went back with his girlfriend to her apartment mm -hmm. and, you know... Yada, yada, yada. One thing led to another. They go to sleep and they never wake up because they died of carbon. Actually, she ended up in a coma that she never recovered from. Right. And he died in his sleep of carbon monoxide poisoning. Which was recorded as an accident. Why? Because. This is super cool. Yeah, because according to Egon Ulbrich, a lifelong friend of Sindelar. He's the guy I was talking about yeah. that was talking about the, the gambling night. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he says in, in the documentary and then also in an article called Football Fascism in England's Nazi Salute on the BBC by Jonathan Duffy, he says that the truth of the story was that a local official was bribed to record Sindelar's death as an accident, ensuring that he would receive a state funeral. Because, and we have a great quote from Ulbrich about this, because... Nazis had particular rules about this. That's right. This is the quote. According to the Nazi rules, a person who had been murdered or who has committed suicide cannot be given a grave of honor. So we had to do something to ensure that the criminal element involved in his death was removed. 
Um, that's wild, man. And it continued escalating. Yeah, the Germans were very, very serious about the value of propaganda. And from their perspective, this sort of insolence could not stand. Mm -mm. So it's pretty obvious that he was murdered. No doubt. And did we mention the fact that for a while, as the Nazis rose to power, maybe this is obvious to everybody but me, they kind of masked their awful racist ways? Totally. But they, they didn't yeah. reveal the full nature of their final solution or their idea of, you know, right. pulling up the Jews and the Roma um, people or sure. any of the just horrible, horrible racist leanings until a good bit later. And this was still during that time where obviously they mm. meant business, but the true nature of their evil was not on full display yet. Well, it was also in that time, this is unfortunate and ugly truth, in that time, anti-Semitism was widespread. We know just that— Just in the gen pop. Yeah, just like throughout Europe, definitely. Also, clearly in the U.S., and the same prejudices apply to Roma as well and other quote-unquote, you know, subversive elements or what they would call deviants. So these people, this group, had existed throughout various countries in Europe for centuries, right? And the— Shocking racism, the anti-Semitism, uh, the ironclad and puritanical attitudes about sex mm -hmm. were normal. If you read a German textbook about the concept of living space for the German people, mm -hmm. it's not that different from uh, many other textbooks of the time that also argued the innate superiority of certain ethnic groups. And it might change during the country. So... People didn't know. I think the point you're making that's really important is people did not know that there was genocide on the horizon. Privately, um, members of the Nazi regime were already thinking of ways to forcibly deport elements of the population they didn't approve of. That's right. And they were trying to figure out where to put them. Like, would it be Madagascar? Would it be some other country? And then eventually, as we know, this led to one of the most horrific occurrences in human history. Oh, God, and I hate to get political about it, but it feels like when you start reading about the early stages of the Nazi takeover and the kind of rhetoric, that kind of this nationalistic rhetoric, while not overtly racist, very dog whistle racist sure. in a very similar way that we're experiencing in our country right now and it scares the crap out of me reading this and thinking about history repeating in just multiple countries right absolutely so we've got this we've got this context with this Sindelar who now we know was murdered but originally we don't it, really know I mean yeah it, but you can't it couldn't I it mean come feels on feels like you was murdered. come on you're right we don't know for sure we that have dossier those those uh, classifications I mean he that was yeah a, everyone says that was a death sentence somebody had their eye on him and not in a good way Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. 
tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So in this in this context, we have the precedent for protests. And then we have the precedent for sport events overall, especially football, soccer, football, soccer, whatever you want to call it. Uh, We see this as a medium for propagandistic communication. Let's get back to this concept of appeasement. Let's talk a little bit about Neville Chamberlain. Yeah, and how far this idea of appeasement went in, in the way it played out on what the Brits refer to as the soccer pitch. Yeah, yeah. We talk a lot about media manipulation in the modern day, but it was a known tried and true technique here in the 1930s as well. So much so that going back to May 1938, the 14th of May, English soccer players travel to Germany to play the German team in a soccer match. That's right, but minus, uh, yeah, minus their their ace in the hole, uh, Sindler, who was still living at this time. Yeah, but he refused. Probably another reason he was blacklisted <laughs> in the way he was to, to add insult to injury. Mm-hmm. He refused to play for the new combined Austrian Germany team, which obviously was just called the German team. Yeah, um, he said it, he cited old age. <laughs> But he was like 35, I think, yeah. and also simultaneously injury. So it was just a bit of a F you to old, you know, Fuhrer. Yeah. So let's set the scene. Casey, could we have maybe uh, the sound of a, of a crowd at a, at a soccer match? More than 100,000 soccer fans file into Berlin's Olympic Stadium. And the countries, at this point, everybody knows war is escalating. Things are ratcheting up, right? Big time. And these countries, Britain and Germany, are still playing nice. They don't trust each other, but they're still going through the motions and the gestures of diplomacy. And swastikas and British flags are flying side by side. The German national anthem is being played over the speakers. But on the field below... If you can imagine this in your mind, fellow historians, something very strange occurs. The German and the British players raise their arms in the infamous Nazi salute, the Heil. Let's hear the clip. Cup final enthusiasm prevails in Berlin when England meet Germany on the soccer field. All the courtesies are observed before the start. God save the king is played. (laughs) 
and the English team in white shirts give the Nazi salute during the German national anthem. 115,000 spectators packed the Great Olympic... Right, so that was newsreel footage from the Associated Press uh, on the day of this infamous event. Um, and, and it's reported eerily in a matter-of-fact kind of way. Um, but there was a lot of controversy surrounding this game because by this point, if not their full uh, final solution level complete and utter evilness mm-hmm. was on display, people knew that the Nazis were fascists. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and Big time. Yeah, and the British press, despite efforts at media manipulation to make the population pro-appeasement, the British press had had enough. People Absolutely. People were outraged. Mm-hmm. And it was even there was even more insult to injury because it turned out, despite this gesture on the part of the English team, Adolf Hitler wasn't even at the game. He wasn't present. They were just saluting the idea of Nazis. No, it's true. In fact, like I think the very first game he ever attended or earlier in this story, uh, they, the, the Germans lost to, I think it was the Netherlands or a smaller team that was seen as being less... Uh, skilled than mm-hmm. the German team. So and he was really irritated about that. So he he didn't always make appearances. Um, but no, he was not at this game. And the thing is, the Germans did lose this game. Um, they got their, uh, their bratwurst handed to them by um, the Brits, who again, yeah. as we said, were pretty damn dominant in the sport. Um, yeah. th- there's an interview in this documentary where the guy's like, yeah, it wasn't really that big of a surprise because pretty much everyone lost to the UK. Oh, yeah. Can we play that guy's clip? I just love his voice. To lose to England at that time was nothing unusual because basically everybody lost to the British team at the time. Uh, So I think for Hitler, uh, the propaganda effect of that game was a lot more important than everything else. Right. They were known to be one of the best teams on the planet. They won the game six to three, six England, three Germany. And The weird thing about the score is it was somewhat of a footnote because the thing everybody was focusing on was this bizarre attempt at diplomacy. It wasn't spontaneous on the part of the English team. Oh, no. Neville Chamberlain had in advance told them to do it. And the from what we understand, the intent of this was to make nice and show that Germany was not considered to be a, quote, pariah state. That's right. Despite the fact that they Pac-Manned up Austria. And that was also kind of part of Germany's propagandistic uh, way of looking at this was to show that, hey, we're just like you. We, we, we like to play sport and mm-hmm. we like to goose step around in our strange Nazi uniforms and I all wait, something's wrong here. It showcase yeah. our superior uh-huh. area and yeah. nature's, yeah. Because I, I, I want to go back a little sure. way, just because I think this is a really important point. Um, the real stage setter for Hitler's use of sport in this way was the 1936 Olympics. The Berlin Olympics. The Berlin yeah. Olympics, yeah. Um, which is super interesting because that was like a world stage. Everyone's watching. It's in Berlin. Hitler's there. He, he used it as an opportunity to showcase, like you said, the efficiency, um, the militaristic might of the Nazi state. Um, but there was a little kink 
in Hitler's idea here of showcasing the, you know, might and prowess of the Aryan supremacy or what have you, um, this mythos he was trying to create, when Jesse Owens, an African-American competitor, won four gold medals. That's right, Ben, four gold medals. Uh, It was in the 100-meter, 200-meter long jump, and four by 100-meter relay race. Just completely in front of God and everyone crushing that idea and hitler was none too pleased right which is which is weird because this is such an iconic moment and you know we're gonna brag a little bit jesse owens is american so take that nazis indeed <laughs> and uh <laughs> do you like how i brag it as if we had anything to do with sure. it yeah but there's an interesting tidbit here because So this occurs in August of 1936. August 1st, I think, is the the first day of competition. There was a newspaper editor named Robert L. Van, himself African-American, who was at the scene. And in an article dated to August 4th, 1936, he says, Wonder of wonders, I saw Herr Adolf Hitler salute the lad. I looked on with a heart which beat proudly as the lad who was crowned king of the 100 meters event got an ovation the like of which I had never heard before. I saw Jesse Owens greeted by the grand chancellor of this country as a brilliant sun peeped out through the clouds. I saw a vast crowd of some 85,000 or 90,000 people stand up and cheer him to the echo. And that is winning hearts and minds, isn't it? I, I think it's so easy to underestimate the importance that these sorts of events can play in human history. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, because the people, I mean, I, I've seen um, pieces, whole, you know, papers written about the idea of uh, sports as a religion. Mm-hmm. People put as much credence in, you know, baseball players and basketball players as they do in, you know, God. <laughs> right, like King James, the name for LeBron. Because right? it's a stand-in for our hopes and dreams, you know? Mm-hmm. Even if it's sort of a false dichotomy, you know, just because you win a, f- f- a soccer game as a country doesn't doesn't really translate in reality to mm-hmm. your might or prowess. It's sort of a microcosmic view of that. Which is why so many countries spend so much money and time and occasionally so much uh, effort at skullduggery when it comes to winning international sports competitions. I I have a, a thing I'd like your take on, Noel, and you as well, folks. Do you think sport, the concept, just sports games, do you feel like it has taken in the most powerful parts of religion, the most powerful parts of war, and the most powerful parts of economy? I feel like it has. I think you just answered your own question, Ben. That is a very... I mean, what do you think? Well, I think it's a very... No, I think that is an astute point, and um, I think that's absolutely true. And I think we see that, too, with what we open the show with, um, the idea of the power that these players have, and when when it doesn't jive with the money behind the power or, like, the organizational power behind the scenes, there can be issues, Sometimes mm-hmm. it involves people getting carbon monoxide poisoned to death in their sleep. Sometimes it involves getting, you know, players being suspended for not for taking a knee during a national anthem. Um, it's just interesting the way politics and sports can be so intertwined. And I think it all goes back to even earlier than this. This is just probably the biggest, most obvious political example that we have. But to mm-hmm. your point, Ben, as far back as the Romans and gladiators and bread and circuses and all that sport has always been a powerful tool to manipulate uh, the minds of the people. 
And manipulate maybe is the wrong word. I don't know. What do you think? I feel like manipulate is a perfect word for this. Uh, Also, we have to we have to point out spoiler alert for World War Two, everyone. So tune out if you don't if you don't want to get spoiled for this. Uh, We have to point out that Chamberlain's and, and Britain's appeasement policy did not work. No, it was just a little more than a year before tensions broke. And war began, correct, Noel? Yeah, it was uh, September of 1939. The Nazis invaded Poland. uh, And that was just a bridge too far for the Allies. They'd finally had enough. Um, The Germans leagued up with the Soviets to partition Poland into their own uh, separate spheres of influence. And that, my friend, is um, the story of how World War II really began in earnest. Uh, And that's the story for another time. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes. You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. No, I really enjoyed this episode, Noel, and I, I I hate to close so soon. Hey, what do you say we do a little bit of listener mail? Huge fan. So the first one uh, I want to pull from a Facebook post that is is a really good summary of um, a myriad of emails we got, uh, Facebook posts, uh, some few a few people slid into our DMs on Instagram and Facebook. I loved all of them, by the way. Thanks yeah, for writing to us, folks. No doubt. But they um, very gingerly shredded <laughs> us on our pronunciation of uh, a few Philadelphia Philadelphiaisms. Let's say it together. Three, two, one. School kill. Only there's some people that even <laughs> quibble with that one, which is why it makes me feel good about it. So uh, this, guy I love says, you, Philly. this guy says, laughing at Ben Bolin and Noel Brown butchering School Kill River. I believe we said some Shoy combination kill? of Shoy Kill, <laughs> Shul Kill, yeah. whatever. It was wrong. Um, this guy, uh, John C., says it's pronounced school, all caps, dash, kill. And then added, you added, John, a smiling, laughing emoji. So we knew 
that we hadn't yeah. fatally offended. No, no, he he shredded us with love. And then Ben, um, as as we're wont to do on Ridiculous Historians, um, posted a delightful response saying, "We murdered that pronunciation so hard that this episode counts as true crime." Badoosh. Hey, thanks for. Uh, and he says, thanks. "Thanks for listening as well for the valuable correction." I did say it. Thanks for. I, you just quoted me. To I myself. quoted you to yourself. You did a listener meta. mail. I love it. <laughs> That's weird. But uh, yeah, but. Check out this thread. This is part of the reason why we love the Ridiculous Historians page, because some of your fellow listeners didn't just point out the correct or accepted pronunciation of this river. Uh, Some of them also began bantering back and forth disagreeing on their own ideas about pronunciation, right? Big time. And then we had one uh, Oliver C. pop in with a little Georgia-centric thing, Mm -hmm. saying here in Georgia, they call the old muddy river Okmulgee, Okmulgee, Okmulgee. And that's spelled O-C-M-U-L-G-E-E. But the funny thing is, I am from Georgia, and I've always said Okmulgee, and I've heard it pronounced that way, but uh, whatever you say. Um, And then uh, (laughs) ghee, like clarified butter, Okmulgee. Okay, no, that's right. Okmulgee. That's right. I've heard it that way. Um, And uh, what you would think would be Houston County is actually Houston County. Which I've noticed. Yeah, that happened to me one time. Yeah. And then we've got a guy, Rob S., saying, Jersey born and raised here. I always heard it as Skookill. Yeah. Drop the L. And John C. comes back in in the thread and says, I don't know if Philadelphians have much room to talk about pronunciation. And he shared this fascinating Washington Post article about the unique Philadelphia accent, which I highly recommend you check out. Like water ice? (laughs) Yeah. Which is basically like what, like like a freeze pop or like kind of Italian ice? Beach towels. Beach towels? Yeah. Uh, And we've got a question that I think will interest a lot of us in the audience, and it is this. What are the strangely pronounced places, landmarks, or things in your neck of the woods? Because, for instance, uh, you know, there's Worcester in Massachusetts, right. which is completely not pronounced how it's spelled. There's, uh, there's Peabody in Boston, I believe, or in Massachusetts as well, where it's apparently Peabody. 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 Which is uh, another um, county or town in in, uh, in Massachusetts. Yeah. So it takes all kinds. Let us know. We want to hear, we're not exaggerating, we want to hear the weirdest ones. Who knows? You you may save us from, a, you, may, you may save us from a future internet post. You know what? Bring it on, babies. I love it. Uh, So we want to thank you, of course, for journeying with us uh, through this story of sports and protest and appeasement. We want to thank Casey Pegram, and we want to thank Christopher Hasiotis, our research associate who hipped us to this story. Do you have a sound effect yet? Let's see, who else do we think? Oh, Alex Williams, who composed our track. And you, Noel Brown. Ben. Yeah, that's I'd like, you. I'd, I'd like to thank you too, man. <laughs> oh, boy. So stay tuned for our next episode where we delve into a strange story about Heineken, which was actually really inspiring to me. Heineken? F*** that Paps Blue Ribbon. All right, yeah. Well, I mean, it takes all beers, uh, you know. I'm a PBR, man. Yeah. 
You're you are a PBR man. But you know what? You can't build a hut out of PBR cans. Oh, well, you could. It just wouldn't be as cool. No. What the heck are we talking about? You may be asking yourself. Tune in to find out. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and... Uh, we, we, we're about to roll out that Pinterest page. I think that's... That old that's chestnut. A, I'm doing a vision board. I'm, I'm keeping it analog, bro. I love really? it. Really? Yeah. You're done. Yeah. You're off the net? No, the vision board, at least, is, is uh-huh. just... It's a, a wall uh-huh. in my house, yeah. and I just paste up different pictures uh-huh. i've been going through a laser tag phase oh that's oh cool like yeah. like like you're, you're gonna go laser tag fashion from here on out you're gonna come to work <laughs> looking like tron and stuff that would be cool you in you interested in this sure man i'll try anything you know a bunch of times <laughs> awesome in the meantime if you don't want to do any of that stuff which you should um you can also join the facebook group ridiculous historians or you can just send us a good old-fashioned email at ridiculous at howstuffworks.com Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.